I want to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take a seat as we get started with our teaching time together this morning. And if you're new or visiting with us, we want to welcome you here to uh, Jericho Ridge. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, teachers and students on Tuesday... It's back to school, right? Teachers on students. A little SNL reference there. You will find yourself with the reality of being affronted with a new time to get up in the morning and have to be ready for your day. So I hope you had a good summer. It's officially over now. So I hope you were able to get out and enjoy a little bit of your summer and have some fun with it. I know some of you did because we posted on our Jericho Ridge Facebook page earlier this week and inviting uh, some submissions of some pictures of some of the places that you were this summer. And so we asked, what's the most interesting natural wonder that you kind of came across? Maybe a, just a lake vista somewhere out in the backcountry or somewhere. So a few uh, photos came in. We have one that came from uh, the Schroeder family. Does anybody know where this is? What is this? Yes, that's right. Exactly. It's the hoodoos in Drumheller, Alberta. So we have a picture of Ryan and Logan on top of some of them and uh, the result of crazy erosion. And so that's a pretty cool natural wonder. Uh, also, we got a picture from uh, Jared and from Mrs. Ruth Allen. And so they were climbing Needle Peak. And so here's a picture of Jared at the top of Needle Peak and just some of the amazing wonders they were be able to see after, I think it's about a five-hour hike, Ruth Allen, does that sound about right? It's a good one. Anyways, you gain a lot of elevation going up there. It's up on the Coquihalla. Um, so there's some great pictures, and you can keep posting those if you want on Jericho Ridge Facebook uh, page. So today, the reason we ask for those is today we're going to look in the Old Testament at an amazing account in the book of Joshua as we wrap up our summer teaching series. And we're going to see what is perhaps one of the most intriguing and amazing natural wonders that's ever happened in the history of the world. The sun standing still in the sky. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let's back up in the beginning of the story. This story starts one chapter earlier in Joshua chapter 9. So turn there in your Bibles or in uversion.com app on your phone. And last weekend, I told you this is a two-part story. So part one was last weekend. And we saw the story of a group of people. And do you remember their name? Josh Groom did a great picture over here for us. Do you remember what the name of the people group was? The Gibeonites, that's right. So the people of Gibeon, they came to the people of Israel and they tricked them. They deceived them into making a peace treaty with them because they dressed up in all of these clothes that looked really old and they brought moldy bread and they brought sandals that were really old. And so they said, oh, we're from a far country. Make a peace treaty with us. And Joshua chapter 9 verse 14 says that the people of Israel, they looked at their clothes and they looked at the bread and they checked out the sandals, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. So that was their fatal mistake, and we learned that we need to ask God. God wants us to ask him for wisdom 
and for input in situations where we don't know what to do. And so the children of Israel, they were taken in by this deception and their ruse, and they made a peace treaty with the people of Gideon because they thought they lived far away. Well, fast forward a little bit, and we learned that they lived right in the land. They lived less than a three days journey away. And fast forward to chapter 10, verse 1 now, and this is where we start to see why this treaty was such a bad idea. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1, says, Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, he heard that Joshua and the people of Israel had captured and completely destroyed Ai and killed its king. That was the city that we were dealing with over here with Achan's hiding the gold underneath his tent, right? And then uh, also he heard about Jericho and how they'd captured it and killed its king. So we had Raya's painting and the the, uh, battle of Jericho, and we had the story of Rahab as well. And so we learned also that the Gibeonites had made peace with Israel, and now they were their allies. And so he and his people became very afraid when they heard all this because Gideon was a large town. It was as large as the royal cities and larger than Ai. And the Gibeonite men were strong warriors. So he thought, well, if they can't beat the children of Israel, how in the world are we going to do it? So he came up with a different plan. King Adoni Zedek of Jerusalem sent messengers to several other kings, King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lashish, and Debir of Eglon. Come and help me destroy Gibeon, he urged them, for they have made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. So these five Ammonite kings all combined their armies for a united attack, and they moved all their troops into place, and they attacked Gibeon. They figured, hey, if we can't win against Israel, let's go against Gibeon. A, they kind of you know, they beat us to the punch. They were smarter, and they outsmarted these children of Israel. And B, they're a little bit smaller than the children of Israel. It's only four cities versus this whole massive army. So let's take out Gibeon, partly for revenge, partly let's just see what happens. So the men of Gibeon quickly sent messengers to Joshua in his camp at Gilgal, and they sent a request to him. They said, don't abandon your servants now, the Gibeonites pleaded. Come at once. Save us. Help us. The Amorite kings who live in the hill country have all joined forces to attack us. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Because remember, the treaty that the people of Gibeon made with Israel was made under false pretenses. They deceived the people of Israel. It was rooted in deception. And so the whole back half of Joshua chapter 9 is the Israelites arguing back and forth. Should we honor the treaty? Should we not honor the treaty? I don't know. It was kind of, they tricked us. Should we, maybe we should just go and wipe them all out. Well, we kind of made a treaty. We promised them. We promised each other. We promised God. We probably shouldn't do that. So in the end, they gripe and they grumble. But they decide, since they made this treaty, and since they swore it before the Lord and before their own people, it was kind of their own darn fault that they didn't ask God for input, so they needed to stick by it. But I don't actually think that they anticipated that the treaty with Gideon would have an impact on them so quickly. And it would go and be tested so quickly afterwards. Because Gideon is now under attack by a huge army. And since as of only a few days earlier, they're now an ally of the people of Israel, they send for help. Because one of the deals in a treaty that you make is when someone attacks you, that anybody who you have a treaty with should come and help you against the armies that are attacking you. You give them help when they need it, they give you help when you need it. That's how the treaty works. But what would you do if you were in Joshua's situation? 
you receive this request for help from the people of Gibeon, and the whole treaty was made under false pretenses. Now, if I was Joshua, I'll tell you what I would do. I would be so tempted to send a message back to the Gideonites saying, sorry, Gibeonites, we are really busy over here. We're planning for a large military campaign to take over the whole of the southern portion of Cana. It's really not a good time for us to send a bunch of troops to kind of come to your aid. And on top of that, it's really not a good thing for us to aid a bunch of sneaky, double-crossing weasels like yourselves. So I hope that works out well for you against those five kings, because, you know, you guys tricked us. The covenant is off. That's what I would be tempted to say. But surprisingly, Joshua keeps his word. He doesn't respond in this way. Even though the treaty itself might be flawed, when he gets a request for help, he honors it. And so they decide, okay, well, we swore to defend and protect, and it was made, this promise was made in, even though they didn't come to us in good faith, we made it before the Lord, and we promised, and our word is our bond, and so there's no going back on it. And so in Joshua chapter 10, verse 7 and 8, we read the following. So Joshua and his entire army, including his best warriors, left Gilgal, and they set out for Gibeon. So they go on this march. It's about 32 kilometers. And on the way, the Lord says to them, do not be afraid of them, the Lord said to Joshua. For I have given you victory over them. Not a single one of them will be able to stand up to you. Now this alliance of these five kings, it's a huge, huge army. It's the entire southern half of Canaan. And these cities, we talked about it last week, about how large of an army that actually is. Joshua and his people are vastly outnumbered in terms of military strength and size. But these kings have heard, and the people have heard what God has done on Joshua's behalf and on behalf of the children of Israel. And so though they have the strength numerically, they're kind of scared. And God makes a promise to Joshua He promises not only that he'll be with him and that Joshua does not need to be afraid, which is one of the promises that's repeated most often in Scripture, but also God promises that he will give Joshua the victory. But the battle scene doesn't quite go as you would expect. And so I'm going to need some volunteers here to act out a battle scene. And so I'm going to need several people. I'm going to need... I'm going to need someone to play the part of Joshua and someone to play the part of the Israelite army. So I'll get two people. Okay, all right, come on over. All right, you guys can play the part of Joshua and the Israelite army. I am going to uh, give you guys some weapons, but you need to show some restraint. All right, okay, all right, ready? Perfect. All right, Jacob, we'll give you the... uh, Okay, no, no, you guys are on the same team. Yeah, you're not fighting each other, right? No, I know, even though the lightsabers are different colors, you're on the same team, okay? All right, so you're going to be Joshua. Jacob, you're going to play the part, and you'll play the part of the Israelite army, okay, Jared? Okay, now we need uh, five people for them to oppose, all right? We need the Amorites, and uh, so you're going to get defeated, but not by the sword. So, okay, all right, come on up, come on up. Okay, we need five, we need five, so, yep, come on up, Kai. Yep, come on up. Yep, okay, all right, so we'll, you can be the king of the Ammonites. How's that? All right, Walter, you can lead your troops. Okay, so let's get you guys down on this side. So the Ammonites, I want you guys all down here. Perfect, there we go, all right, there you go, yep. All right, 
Perfect. So you guys, all right, so you guys are ready. You're going to attack the people of Gibeon. I need someone to be the people of Gideon. It's, it's a non-speaking part. It's of, of no consequence. You've already sent for help. I've already told. Okay, Sophie, you can be the people of Gibeon. Okay, so Sophie, you can just stand over here. All right. Okay, so the Ammonites are getting ready to attack the people of Gibeon. All right? All right. And uh, I also need, uh, let's see, I need someone to play the part of the sun, actually, and the heavenly bodies. Who's going to play the part of the sun? All right. Okay, Mrs. Ruth Ellen, come on over. You can play the part of, you need to know um, our nickname for Ruth Ellen in the office is Little Miss Sunshine. So I think this is a good, appropriate part for her to play. Okay, so Mrs. Ruth Ellen, you can stand here. You'll be playing the part of the sun, and I also have something to give you in just a minute. Okay, all right, so here we are. This is what is, we'll set up the scene. So the Amorites and the kings, and they've all come. They're going to attack the people of Gibeon, and they're all excited about this. And the people of Gideon are, oh, we're going to get freaked out. Oh, we need to send for help. So they send to Joshua for help. You need to freak out a little bit. Ah, that's right. Perfect. Excellent. Well done. Well done. So Joshua and his army march all night, through the night. They're marching, 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 marching. And they come, and they actually... Yeah, the sun's not in the part. It's at night. They're marching, 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 and they come, and they come, and they come, and the text says they catch the kings by surprise. So you need to be surprised. Perfect. Excellent. Okay, 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 but they don't, like, you know, they don't kill them just yet. Anyways, okay. So verse 10 says, the Lord actually, not just the surprise, but God actually threw the kings into a panic. So you need to now panic. Ah, okay. Just panic on the spot because we need you for a minute yet. So you need to panic. There's lots of panic happening. Perfect. And the Israelites killed a great number of them at Gibeon. So why don't you kill maybe two of them? Okay. All right. That's okay. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So two of them got killed at Gibeon. And then when that happened, the rest of them got a little bit freaked out and started to run away. Run away on the spot. Run away. Uh, just on the spot. On the spot. Perfect. Okay. Now, now, you guys begin to chase them, but actually now we need, we need the part of the heavenly bodies to come into play, all right? And the text says that something actually happened. God began to actually fight. Not only did, did God give them help to kill, but actually the, the heavens rained down hail on the kings, and they actually got they raining on them. They're, yeah, yeah, ran down hail on them, all right? And more of them were killed by the hail than by the Israelite army, all right? So the hail keeps coming, right? Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Good. Hail just kept coming. Perfect. All right. So a hailstorm killed the enemies and more of the Israelites killed with the sword. So it's coming from the sky. So don't worry. That's just styrofoam. And apparently the paint comes off of it fairly easily. So good. Okay. So Joshua and his army chased them down the, uh, down the road for about 20 miles. But a few of them are still alive. A few. Just one. We'll just say one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's still alive. And it's trying to get away. And now it's beginning to get to be nightfall. It begins to get to be nightfall. Perfect. Excellent. Okay. So the sun is beginning to go down. Now the problem with this happening is in the ancient world, on the battlefield, it's not as clean cut as we do, you know, all of our high-tech warfare today. When there's night happens, you stop fighting because on the battlefield, you don't know is that someone is on your team or on the other team. And so if nightfall happens, Joshua, because of all of his wisdom and his lightsaber, knows that if nightfall happens, they're going to get away and they'll regroup, and they'll have lost the battle. And all of the gains that have happened in, in this battle will be lost because they'll be able to get away and go and get other allies. So 
Joshua does something extraordinarily bold. He prays a prayer. And the prayer that he prays is incredibly audacious. It's not just a help me win the battle kind of prayer. It's an incredibly bold prayer. It's one of perhaps the boldest prayers ever prayed by a human being. In front of all the people of Israel, and you can see them in Hannah Smethurst's painting here, Joshua says, son, stand still. So I want you to say to the son, stand still. Go ahead, Jacob. Say it to the son. Say it to the son. Stand still. There you go. Perfect. And you know what? Chapter 10, verse 13 says, so the son stood still. And the moon stayed in place until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. You can go defeat your enemies now. All right? Go finish, go finish them off. The sun sets still. They're already dead. Go and get the ones that aren't dead. <laughs> okay, so let's thank all of our participants for their assistance. <laughs> all right. Perfect. Excellent. So chapter 10, verse 13 says that the sun stood still in the sky and the moon stayed in place until the nation of Israel defeated its enemies. Is this event not recorded in the book of Jashir? Thanks, guys. That's awesome. So Joshua, the narrator in the book of Joshua is saying, hey, there's an external source for this. Go and check it out. This is an ancient book of poetry that exists. The sun stayed in the middle of the sky. It did not set as it does on a normal day. There has never been a day like it before or since when the Lord answered such a prayer. Thanks. Surely the Lord fought for Israel on that day. Then Joshua and the Israelite army returned to their camp at Gilgal. It's an incredible story, an absolutely amazing story of God's intervention in this particular situation. Over and over and over again, in order to fulfill his promise that God made to Joshua and to his people, God does the impossible. He throws these kings into confusion. He rains hail down on them so that more of them are killed that way than by the Israelite sword. And then he actually intervenes in the course of of natural events so that the sun stands still in the sky and does not set as it would on a normal day in response to Joshua's prayer. Now, when we read this text, a lot of us think to ourselves, yeah, right. The sun actually stood still. That's impossible that the sun would park it in the sky for an extra day or an extra half a day. I mean, the laws of nature would be suspended and the rotation of the earth stopped. Like, I'm not sure I can get my head around that. You know, what, what was happening? Was it some kind of weird uh, solar eclipse or reflection of light in some way? Like, maybe they just thought the sun was standing still. Maybe it just seemed like a really long day because they'd marched all night and they were tired, so they thought that it, they got extra time. And it's a good question. Because we want to ask, what do you make of this kind of phenomenon? And I think there's a couple things you can do. One strategy that well-intentioned scientists that have a faith perspective have gone hard after is trying to prove that some day in Earth's history that there's an extra half day in the life of the Earth somehow that needs to be accounted for, and therefore 
accounts for it. And then they look also into the stories in, uh, in Kings and the sun moving backwards and the sundial a few. And they're like, well, there's lost seconds. And so this is that. And this explains everything. And this totally proves the Bible is true because I found an extra half day in our calendar somewhere. So, I mean, that's one strategy that you could go about. But it isn't really a strategy that the text actually invites us to consider because the text doesn't point us in that direction. We tend to think to ourselves as very scientific people in 2013, well, isn't that quaint? A nice little story about a kid named Josh and his little army, and after marching all night, they're so tired, and they fight, and it just seems like a really, really long day, so they chalk it up to the sun standing still in the sky. How unscientifically naive of them. I mean, if uh, only watches had been invented, they could have kept a little bit closer track of time. It probably just felt that way to them. But again, this isn't the conclusion that the narrator comes to in the book of Joshua. As modern people who are highly enamored with scientific questions and around accuracy and all of these types of things, we're tempted to explain away this instant as an ancient misunderstanding. But that's not where the text takes us. The text actually has much less of a focus on what's going on in the sky. And we like to ask questions about, well, how did the sun stand still? For how long did the sun stand still? And the text asks what's perhaps a more preliminary and primary and salient question. The text is designed to answer the question, why did this happen, not how did it happen? The narrator of Joshua 10 wants us to focus our eyes not on what's happening up in the sky, but actually what's happening on the ground at earth level. That a human being praying this kind of bold, audacious prayer, God actually heard it and responded to it. It's not stunning to the narrator that God hears prayer, It's not stunning to the narrator that the God who created the universe itself would intervene in the natural order in a supernatural way. What is seen as stunning in the text is the request, the magnitude of it, the gutsiness of it, and that God himself would actually listen to this kind of request. There has never been another day like this one before or since where the Lord answered such a prayer. The focus is on the request. Surely the Lord fought for Israel that day. The focus is on the faith of the one making such a bold statement and daring to ask God for something so seemingly impossible. You see, Joshua possesses something that a lot of us wrestle with. Joshua possesses a sun-stand-still kind of faith. Joshua trusts so completely in the promise that God gave to him that not a single one of them will be able to stand up to you, that he's willing to make a bold and audacious request of God in order to fulfill that promise. You see, think about Joshua. Joshua has been through it all. All of the stories we have covered this summer. See, Joshua's grown up in Egypt. He's experienced what it felt like in that season where God seemed distant and God was not listening, apparently, to the cries of his people Israel as they pleaded to him. 
where it felt like God didn't care. And then God saw Joshua, Joshua rather, saw God intervene in the life of his people in Egypt in amazing and outstanding ways, supernatural ways. Joshua lived through the ten plagues. He saw water turn to blood. He saw how darkness pervaded the whole nation of Egypt, except the places where the Israelites lived. He saw God confound the natural order and overpower the magicians in Egypt, where God did amazing and impossible things. Joshua was there. He saw the Red Sea get parted and people walk through on dry land with water stacked up on either side of them. And then the water rushes back in and covers and annihilates the Egyptians who were chasing them. Joshua's lived through famine in the parched desert. He has seen God provide quail for a million plus people. God has, he's seen people complain about being thirsty and God bring forth water from rocks where there was no water before. And Joshua has seen time and time again and knows what God is capable of. Joshua has seen the earth open up and swallow people who grumbled against God. Joshua has heard of and responded to God making a donkey talk to Balaam. He's seen the priests set their feet on the Jordan River and it stop and pile up and people walk across on dry land. He's walked around the city of Jericho seven times for seven days and nothing happened and then the last day when they shout, the walls fall down. Joshua has seen God work in incredible and powerful ways. And so like his predecessor, Moses, Joshua dares to ask God for the impossible, the seemingly impossible and the miraculous. He dares to lift his eyes to heaven with boldness, and he dares to approach God, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse verse 16, he dares to approach God with confidence in a time of need. And here's where the story gets challenging, because Joshua has a sun-stand-still kind of faith. And I think Joshua's faith and the prayer that he prays as a result of his experience with God invites us to look at our own experiences and our own stories and to ask questions. One of the questions that I think it ought to prompt us to ask is, where has God intervened in your life? Where has God intervened in your life in some way? As I think about the story of my own life, I can identify times when God has intervened in my life in extraordinary ways. I remember being in an accident where every single person around said, you ought to have died. And he walked away without a scratch on me. People were like, what happened? God intervened in our life and protected us. I remember uh, in the September, the year that I was deciding uh, to go to college, I had this big plan that I had for my own life. And I was going to go to university in Ontario, and I was going to get a comfortable job and make a lot of money. And I traveled out here and visited a friend. And when I walked into the building uh, at Northwest Baptist College, I heard God speak to me just as clearly as anybody else would speak to me today and say, this is where I want you for the next four years. God intervened in my life. And so I packed up and headed to Bible college. Think about your story. Think about times when God has intervened in your life in significant or in small ways. 
Where has God intervened in your life? You see, if you call to mind a history of how God has intervened in your life supernaturally in the past, it gives you a different set of confidence to be able to come to God with in a conversation and ask great and mighty things. Because if you think about your history and the times when God has intervened, it's one way to deepen your faith in who he is and what he wants to do. This is one of the reasons why, for me, I keep track of the things that I'm praying for in the back of my momentum journal. And when God answers something, I cross it off, or I make a little note. And when I flip through it then, I can see all of the things that God has answered and how many times God has listened to prayers that people have been praying and intervened in amazing ways. But when I write my prayers out and when I look through the back of my momentum journal, it causes me to ask another kind of question of myself and you today. And the question is this. Would you characterize your current prayer life as boring or audacious? Because as I was preparing this message, I began to look through some of the things that I've written down and the things that I am usually pray for. And to tell you the truth, it was kind of convicting. Because a lot of times... Prayers go a little bit like this. Lord, thank you for this food. We pray for safety. Help us have a good day. Bless us, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with approaching God in that way. But one of the things that I began to reflect on is how difficult, you know, how difficult is it really for God to answer those types of prayers? I mean, it's really, if we think about it, it's really not hard for God to bless the food, is it? I mean, he's kind of done that already. We live in a place of abundance where, you know, we have a lot. And uh, we also live, you know, think about a prayer for safety. We live in a part of the world that has more laws about safety than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Yes, it's pretty dangerous out there, but it's a lot easier for God to answer a prayer, God, keep me safe in Langley, than it is, say, in Guatemala, where 18% of the population are disabled from accidents of various kind, or in Tanzania, or in China. And maybe when we reflect on it, maybe that's kind of the point. Maybe we don't ask God for things audaciously because maybe we don't actually really need him. I was reminded of a conversation that Meg and I had uh, with Andrew and Colleen Birkinshaw when they came back from their time in Nepal. And Meg asked Andrew, Andrew, what do you miss about Nepal? And we thought, well, Andrew would say, I miss some of the people there. You know, I miss the things that, that God invited us to be a part of while we were there. And I think he surprised both of us with his answer. He said, I miss the struggle. It was just really hard. Life was just challenging. Everything was challenging there. And so in those places of struggle, because even the very simplest things were so hard, we learned to depend on God in a different way. We had to depend on God for anything and everything. And here in our context where life can be pretty easy. Andrew said, my prayer life is beginning to actually suffer because I don't really know what I need to depend on God for anymore. 
when you're in the middle of a struggle, when you're in the middle of a place that's far outside of your comfort zone, your prayer life has a different tone to it. Your conversations with God are alive. They're full of passion. They're full of boldness. They're full of audacity. Jesus invites us in John chapter 14, and he's talking about prayer, and he says, you can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. And in, in John 14, he's talking about what does it mean to live a life that is following God so deeply and passionately that you could be in a place where the things that you're asking in boldness and faith and confidence flow out of the will of the Father. God desires to bring glory to himself in your life and in his church. But when things are so calm and when we're so concerned with the status quo and when things settle down, our prayer lives become mundane and they become boring. So let me ask you, what kind of things are you talking to God about these days? If you're praying for boring stuff, what is holding you back from praying with audacity and boldness. In pre-gathering prayer, we were asking the question, what keeps us from praying boldly? We said things like disbelief and unbelief, where we put God in a box and we rely on our own strength instead of faith. Fear can keep us from asking boldly. Anxiety of either that God may do something that is unpredictable or God may ask us to do something and participate, and we may not want to, so we don't ask boldly. We talked about the scriptures that that talk about unconfessed sin or the state of things in our own lives can keep us from praying boldly, or when we pray, and we might think we're praying boldly, God says, I can't listen because there's unconfessed sin in your life. There's division within the body. There's roots of bitterness can keep you from praying boldly. Sometimes, we said, it can feel like you're asking too much of God. And so we just back it off a little or a lot because maybe we don't actually trust that God is sovereign. Maybe we don't pray boldly because we're too busy. We rush through our prayers and we take it as a bit of a checklist and just try to get through them. And so there's no boldness or confidence in it. It's just the mentality that we come to. All right, I guess we should pray. And then we go ahead and do it. Maybe we don't pray with boldness because we've been praying about this thing for a long time and maybe nothing's changed. And so we've given up. Maybe the scriptures say we don't have not because we ask not. Maybe we just don't bother to come at all. Or another scripture says we ask with wrong motives in James. Maybe we've forgotten what God has done. Maybe we've forgotten his character. Maybe we're not willing to be surprised anymore because things have to happen exactly like we think that they should happen. If you're praying for boring stuff, what's keeping you back? What is holding you back from praying with boldness and a sun stand still kind of faith? For me, what sometimes holds me back is that easy prayers come to mind more quickly. 
And so I go into that mode where I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to pray now. What am I going to pray about? Okay, I'll flip open my journal. Where people, if someone says, hey, will you pray for me? I try and remember to write it down. And I kind of start going through the list a little bit. And so some of those bigger things that God has put on my heart to pray for, I just forget because I'm kind of going through my list, checking it off. And so I forget to ask God for bigger, bolder things. And sometimes I forget just because I forget, but sometimes I think I forget because maybe I'm afraid to ask God for something bigger and bolder because they seem bigger and sometimes pretty impossible. And so maybe I aim a bit lower or a lot lower. Maybe you do the same. Maybe you've been praying about a broken relationship for a long, long time. And you just think, I don't know, what's the use? I don't want to pray about it anymore. You know, it's impossible. There's no restoration that's going to happen there. But the challenge of Joshua that we see is to begin to raise our vision, to see what happens and what would happen as an individual and as a faith community if we began to set our sights higher and we began to pray and raise the audacity level of our prayers. As a church family, I want us to see what happens when we dare to ask God for things that we've told ourselves are impossible. When we pray for those impossibly broken relationships to be restored, when we pray for those people in our family who we think will never be open to God or a conversation about God, when we pray for and ask God for wisdom to deal with that impossibly complex parenting situation, what would it look like to trust God in a fresh way for provision in your family and actually trust him? So here's what I want us to do. Ruth Ellen and the team are going to come and lead us in songs that speak to this issue of faith. Sometimes we need to let God and invite God to stir faith up in our hearts. And so the songs speak to this. They put those words in our mouths and make it a prayer of aspiration. And I want you to think about an audacious prayer that you are praying, that you're wanting or that you are needing to pray. A prayer that will take a sun stand still kind of faith in order to see it accomplished and come to bear. A prayer that requires God to move in a way that seems impossible. A prayer that requires God to move in a miraculous way. And I want you to come. There's two tables at the side there, uh, one on this side and one over on the far side. And I want you to come while we're singing, and I want you to grab one of those little suns. There's big ones, there's little ones, and there's some Sharpie markers over there. And I want you to actually write out there your own sun stand still prayer. And it might be just a word or two words that kind of encapsulates that for you. Maybe it's family saved, or lost found, or job needed, or whatever it is. It can be something longer if you want and you have really small writing. But I want to actually for you to take that, name it, and take it home with you as a reminder to keep pressing in for sun stand still kind of faith. I want you to ask God, God, what are you putting in my heart, in my mind? What are you putting in the life of our community where we want to raise our challenge level? 
and ask you boldly and ask you, come to you with audacious faith like Joshua did. And if you want to pray with somebody about that and you want, you say, I don't even know if I have the faith 